you have your Bibles, why don't we go to the book of Philippians, chapter 1 together, where we left off last week, studying verse by verse through the book of Philippians, and last week we went down in chapter 1 as far as verse 21, and this morning we're going to pick up in verse 22 and finish the first chapter together. Philippians 1, beginning in verse 22, and if you do need a Bible, there's a few in the aisles, the guys have a copy, if you need a copy of the scripture to follow along in God's word with us, you're welcome to let them know they can get a copy of the scriptures over to you. And if you're turned to Philippians 1.22, would you stand together with me out of respect for the word of God as we read our passage of scripture this morning. Philippians 1, beginning in verse 22. Paul says, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. And Father, we hold before you the word of God, believing, Lord, that it is indeed your word, that you, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, breathed out the very words, the thoughts, the intents, everything, Lord, behind it, within it. And Lord, we acknowledge it by faith as the living and powerful word of God. And we ask that it would be like a two-edged sword this morning. That, Lord, it would divide between soul and spirit, judge the thoughts and the intents of our heart. That, Lord, through studying it, it would be profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that as men and women of God, we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, Lord, would you prepare us however that needs to happen within us and we pray that powerfully and personally you would speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit's ministry. Bless your word, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, as a follower of Jesus, we are not supposed to just be existing in our world. As a follower of Jesus, quite honestly, we are supposed to be effective in our world. And there is a very big difference. We can just exist in our world and do the best that we can not to be contaminated by all these ungodly people around us and just kind of do what we can to, to hunker down and just try and bury our head in the sand and get through heaven and, and we can just exist here and just kind of ride our way and again we have our ticket and we know we're going to get to heaven so just kind of exist here until we get out of this world or the other opposite way really of living as a believer is to actually seek to be effective in our world and I believe it's the will of God not just to exist in our world but to be effective in our world to be effective for the Lord to have an impact while we're here until we do depart and get to go home to be with Christ as Paul says which is far better and I think you'll see that's really what kind of the heart of our passage is seeking to indicate as Paul's talking about some of the things that he is now, just by way of a backdrop, remember, Paul in our prior verses had just been speaking about the realization in his own mind of the fact uh, that his death was a very likely possibility. Considering the fact that he at this point was a prisoner awaiting trial before the Roman government, Paul said there, as we saw even in verses 20 and 21, as he sort of wrapped up where we looked at last week, saying, uh, look... Uh, that I pray that now also he says that Christ, verse 20, will be magnified in my body whether by life 
or by death. And we know what Paul meant by that was, look, I don't know whether God's going to choose to be merciful to me and he's going to allow me to be released from prison this time. Paul was in prison multiple times for sharing the gospel faithfully. Uh, and he said, I don't know whether on this occasion I'm going to be released and I'm going to get to keep on living or whether or not uh, this is the appointed hour and day for me to depart and be with Christ, as he's going to say, uh, and whether this trial is going to result in my death and I'm going to lose my life. But he said, whether God lets me keep living or whether God chooses and permits for me to die at this time, I just pray that either way in life or death that Christ would be honored in it and that he would be magnified in my life and exalted through whatever takes place. And then, of course, that culminating statement Paul makes there, we all love verse 21, for me to live, Paul says, is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And it almost seems as if, to me, Paul kind of, almost further explains now what he means by what he just said in verse 21. Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. Well, it's almost as if Paul wants to sort of expand that and give a further explanation. In other words, what does it mean, Paul? What does it mean to live for Christ? Well, he says in the next verse, if I live on in the flesh, it will mean fruit from my labor. So if I'm going to live for Christ, Paul says, look, if the Lord grants me more time to live, the benefit of that, he said, I, I can see in my life is it will allow for me to do more work in the Lord's harvest field. He says, it will mean if I live, it will mean fruit from my labor. I want you to take note of this. And again, if you're a note taker for Paul living for Christ, it seems involved laboring for Christ. Living for Christ to Paul also meant laboring for Christ. It's almost as if we could say those two things in Paul's mind, they just went together. They were automatic. If you live for Christ, then you want to labor for Christ. If you live for Christ, you should labor for Christ. Paul, remember, he said at the beginning of this letter, viewed himself as a Christian, as a believer and follower of Jesus. He viewed himself really as a servant of Jesus Christ. And what do servants do? Servants do work that benefit their master. Servants are productive for their master's causes. They seek to advance the benefit and the welfare and the profitability of their master's business. And Paul, clearly, you study his life, had a Christian lifestyle that was marked by service and it was characterized by spiritual labor. Remember, Jesus on one occasion made this statement. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful. Plenty of work to do, Jesus says. But he says, the problem always ends up being, but the laborers are few. And then he said, go out and get the work. He actually said, pray the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into his harvest field because I, the Lord wants us to be sent out to do his work by his bidding, his direction, and his anointing and leading behind what we do. And, and so Jesus acknowledged this reality, but it's an important spiritual principle. There is always a gap, according to Jesus, and there always will be a gap, quite honestly. There's always a gap between the amount of spiritual work that could be accomplished on this planet and the human beings who follow Jesus Christ that are willing to offer up their time to the Lord or to roll up their sleeves, if you would, for Jesus and be willing to step into and get involved in good works for the Lord and seeking to let their life be productive and profitable by doing things to serve the Lord and serve people to advance the kingdom of God and minister to people. And Paul certainly, we have to agree, became most definitely one of those laborers in the Lord's harvest field. Paul had a life that was characterized by always sowing his time and his efforts into God's harvest field. This was a guy that constantly was planting into the realm of spiritual service. Whether it was sharing the gospel message with people, whether it was just serving people in different ways to show love and minister to people, whether it was teaching God's word, whether it was listening to people and counseling people, whether it was providing leadership, whether it was planting churches, you name it. Paul just had a lifestyle that was marked by constantly just sowing into the harvest 
of God's field and doing what he can to plant in ways of spiritual service. And Paul made sure, and I think he's a great example of this, he made sure that he was not just a spiritual consumer that was always looking for what others could do for him. Paul instead always found ways to be a spiritual contributor. He always was looking and finding for ways to serve, no matter what he was doing. I even love the, the story in Acts chapter 28 where they're shipwrecked on an island and Paul goes out and starts picking up sticks for firewood to try and make a fire. And again, just wherever this guy was, he just had a knack. And it may not have been the most prominent thing, but he just had a sense and a self-initiation within him. Hey, in this situation, what can I do to help make myself profitable? How can I serve? What can I do? And he, he just had that sense from the Lord's heart within him of how he could always seek to make himself spiritually productive. And you know what? Can I encourage you this morning, as Paul is the epitome of a productive Christian, for you and I this morning, if we are going to profess to live for Jesus Christ, may the Lord help us to always be endeavoring to try and be productive for Jesus Christ. If I'm going to profess to live for Jesus, then I want to endeavor by the same token to pursue ways to be looking how I can labor for Jesus. Trying to find ways where I can be productive for the Lord in some way. Whether it's in the body of Christ and among the church, whether it's out in the world and in your job place, or, or whether it's in your home life, look for ways to be productive for the Lord to try and seek to contribute rather than always looking to consume. I really think it's important, especially in our American culture, we almost have to guard ourselves against, I would call it, passive Christianity. And by that, I, I kind of mean this, if I can give an example or two. Sometimes passive Christianity, and I know I can be guilty of this, and I have to try and guard my own home life and, and personal life from this, where sometimes passive Christianity, it's almost where we become so consumed trying to insulate ourselves from the pollution of that wicked, evil, ungodly world out there, that as we're so consumed trying to insulate ourselves and our family from all the wicked, ungodly things, we're never having any impact on the ungodly, wicked, dying world that, guess what, was just like me and you until somebody impacted and reached out to us and shared Jesus with us. And if somebody was just living insulated and, oh, gosh, I don't want to talk to Tony. He's a pagan. Tony would be going to hell still. But instead, Tony's saved and he's actually standing up here teaching the Bible because somebody was willing to try and impact my life and reach into my life and love me and minister to me. And again, in balance, I understand we have to be wise. I'm not saying cast off boundaries and restraints and, and be foolish. But by the same token, we can be guilty sometimes as Christians of so overly trying to Christianize our world and, and keep all these insulator barriers up that we're, we're never impacting the world whether it's our schools or our neighborhoods or our jobs or our communities. And I just think that's important. Philippians uh, chapter 2, Paul's going to say, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, he says, we should shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Yeah, he says it's a crooked and perverse generation. True. But he says, we should try and shine as lights, holding out the word of God. Now, I think another way that sometimes as Christians we can be guilty of this as well, sort of being a little passive in our Christianity rather than productive, and I want to say that I think there's a greater guilt of this in American Christianity rather than if I was standing this morning in India or Africa or somewhere else, is that sometimes as believers people can begin to view their Christian life like they're just shopping at a big spiritual mall. And in America, you can do that because we have so much Christian literature available. It's on our TV and bookstores and, and Christian radio and music and churches on it. And because of that, some people begin to regress into this attitude in their Christianity where they become just like spiritual customers. Who has not heard somebody say something before like, I know I have, you know, we're still kind of shopping for a church right now. What? Shopping for a church? What in the world does that mean? Shopping for a church. Or, or, you know, sometimes in my Christianity, I can get to the place where I'm always looking to hear the next Bible study or I want to get some of this material. And, and I'm always just looking for, 
you know, consume, consume, consume. I like, I like these books and I like to listen to this music. And, and, and I'm always constantly thinking about what can I get for me? How can I encourage myself, enrich myself? And again, not that it's not important to grow and to be invested in. But we got to be careful. Let's not just become like spiritual customers where it's all about what do I want? What do I need? And, and does this have what, where we're just kind of shopping in the big mall of the Christian extravaganza in churches and music and books and literature rather than saying, whoa, wait a minute. The Bible that you and I read, to me, when I read it, it seems to picture Christianity more like a harvest field. I see Christianity in the Bible pictured as like a construction site. And things like a battlefield. Well, in a battlefield, uh, soldiers have to be willing to put on their boots and their gear and, and get into the battle. And on a construction site, you got to be willing to roll up your sleeves and take out your tools and, and do some work. And I think it's important for us that we look for ways as Christians, remember where God puts us and places us, to be helpful, to want to be useful for the Lord, productive. Like Paul, where we would say, you know what? If I'm going to live, then I'm going to make sure it means fruit for my labor. If I'm going to live for Christ, I want to labor for Christ. Notice Paul also seems to believe that spiritual labor would yield spiritual fruit. He says fruitful labor. Paul didn't always know how that fruit might come or when the fruit would blossom, but I think he believed that ultimately fruit would always come from his spiritual labor and his spiritual service. He just had a sense of confidence that the Lord honors his system of sowing and reaping in the good way, that if we sow to the things of God and we plant seed, we may not see the fruit right away, we may not see it in the amounts that we want, but God honors his work. God honors his word. Jesus said in John 15, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Jesus said, I appointed you to go and bear fruit. It's the heart of the Lord that fruit would be born out of our service for him. Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And I think when we labor in any way for the Lord, we should do so confidently, believing, having faith that good fruit will come, it will result in some way and in some time. And I stress, in some way and in some time. Don't get over caught up and give up and discouraged because you're not seeing the fruit you want. Or, you know, And I understand that. I can't tell you. There are plenty of times where I seek to serve the Lord and I do things and afterwards I'm doing everything I can to counsel myself from not feeling suicidal because I'm so discouraged that it seems like nothing's coming out of it or nothing has come out of it. God will bring fruit in his own way, in his own time. Everybody wrestles with that. Even Paul the Apostle, listen to his own words, Galatians 6, 9, and 10. He said, let us, he included himself, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. The idea is if we don't give up, that in due season a reaping will come. And you know, as parents, we have to remember that as we invest in our children. As Christians, as we minister in our world, we have to remember that as we pray and share the gospel with loved ones and friends, and as we do things in ministry, we realize, look, in due season, fruit will come. You plant the seeds and you trust God to bring the harvest in his good time. So Paul knew living more on earth would yield fruitful labor, but he also knew that his death would also bring what? Great gain spiritually. And that's what he goes on to speak about. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul says, let me speak about that part. He says, what shall I choose? Verse 22, I cannot tell. Twelve, tell. There you go. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh, Paul says, is more needful for you. You take notice of something here. Maybe it'll liberate you if you feel sometimes as a Christian that you I feel like I'm just kind of torn between two worlds. Do you notice here that part of the Christian experience, it's normal to have a continual struggle inside of yourself uh, because you're attached to two worlds at the same time? That's just a reality. Once you become a Christian, Philippians 3 says you become a citizen of, of heaven. But yet at the same time, you still have 
an abiding sort of uh, you know, temporary role as an ambassador here on earth until you get to go home to be in heaven. So we're legitimately attached to two worlds and we're torn many times as Christians because of our attachment to two worlds. Paul had an attachment to the present world and there were people whom he loved and he had an attachment to legitimately but he also had an attachment to the world to come where he would ultimately get to be together with Jesus and enjoy the benefits of heaven. And he had a real connection to both places. Heaven was his home. It was his destination. But earth was his current assignment. It was his present mission. So there was a sense of kind of being torn between. You can see him describing here. He longed for the benefits of heaven, but he also realized the benefits as well of remaining for a season on earth to continue serving people. And again, Paul's saying these things, what shall I choose? Again, don't read too much into that. Paul understood ultimately that he didn't have the right to choose. God was going to make the decision on his lifespan. The Bible says all of our days are written in God's book before one ever comes to be. Paul understood that. Don't misunderstand what he's saying. But he sensed that struggle, that heaven-earth struggle within Verse 23, he speaks about here how he naturally wanted to go to heaven and be with Jesus. He says, to be honest, verse 23, he says, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Notice that Paul pictured death as a Christian as a departure from the body and from this world. It's an interesting term he uses there in the original language, that word depart. In the Greek, it actually referred to multiple different things. It was used by sailors to make reference to how they would loose up the ropes of a docked ship so that it could then set sail and go out into the deeper seas. And sailors would use this term, loosing up a ship from the place where it's docked so that it can be freed up to go out into the deeper seas. And of course, this is a very beautiful picture of how we're kind of tied to this world in a physical body until the day the Lord releases us from it and we can go out into the depths of the eternal seas of being with God forever in the eternal realm. That term depart also was used by soldiers in the military as a reference to taking down their tents, which were a temporary dwelling, so that they could move on to the next location. And that term depart was used regarding taking down a tent to move on. And the Bible, we know, in different passages, speaks of our bodies as a tent, a temporary dwelling place that serves a purpose for a set time, but a tent's not a permanent location. It's a temporary dwelling for a purpose and a time, but it's not the permanent residence. And in Second Peter chapter 1, Peter says this, Yes, I think it's right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I'll be careful to ensure you always have a reminder of these things, he says, after my decease. So he's speaking about his death. And he says, I know my decease, my death is impending, it's coming. The Lord showed me that my time is short. So he says, I want to remind you of a few things before I put off my tent. Again, Peter had that idea of his physical body. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says there, We know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, having a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan. You ever groan? It's biblical. You got out of bed this morning, you're fulfilling the Bible there. In this tent, he said, you know, the tent starts to wear out. You realize the longer you're in that tent, things start to sag, right? They start to tear. They start to leak a little bit, just like a tent. The Bible says it's a tent. This is a temporary dwelling. The true part of you, your spirit, is what's eternal and lasting. But God gives us this physical tent while on this earth temporarily to express ourselves, to experience the physical realm, to talk, to see things, to taste, to touch, to embrace but it's just a tent. It has a purpose. And after a while, a tent no longer serves its purpose and it's time to move out of the tent. And that's what he's saying here, that we know that when this earthly tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And he says, we groan desiring to be clothed with that eternal habitation, that physical and spiritual body that will one day inhabit 
for eternity. So what a picture of the death of a believer moving out of a temporary dwelling and moving on to somewhere better. And notice Paul's assurance of when a believer dies, he says, his assurance to desire, he says, to depart is to, notice these three words, be with Christ. That's an assurance. Paul says, I am assured of this, the moment of my departure, the instant of my death as a believer in Jesus, he says, I know that to depart is to automatically be with Christ. It is to instantaneously be with Christ. The Bible, hear me, does not teach soul sleep. The Bible does not teach purgatory. These are unbiblical concepts. The Bible teaches the Christian departs and instantaneously the spirit is released from the body and is present with the Lord. Again, that very moment, 2 Corinthians 5, again, that same chapter, listen to what Paul says, we are confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. But we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Please, do you hear what the Bible says? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord instantaneously as a Christian. And we need to hold on to that assurance and by the same token, let me also say briefly, if you're here this morning and you're not following Jesus Christ, you've never asked Him to forgive your sins, you haven't settled the issue of accepting Him as Savior and Lord, listen, there's no second chance after you die. You breathe your last and that's it. It's appointed for man to die once, the Bible says, and face judgment. No second times around or I'll, I'll, I'll fix it when I get on the other side. No, it is settled now while you're breathing. And you don't have control over that. And I just encourage you in the love of God, don't fool around with that. Don't make that trivial. It's an essential thing to realize the reality of what happens at death, but it's an encouraging thing as a Christian to know the moment I die, I'm instantly present with the Lord. The moment a loved one who knows Jesus dies, they're instantly freed from that body and they are in the presence of Jesus enjoying the eternal realm. And that's why Paul says, and again, notice the Bible's credible, credible description. He says, to be with Christ, he says, verse 23, is far better, far better. It's not just better, Paul says, it is far better. There's no comparison, he's trying to say. No matter how wonderful life on this earth can be, and there are good things on this earth, things we enjoy that are satisfying and enjoyable, but no matter how enjoyable, satisfying, or wonderful life on this earth can be, it is always a far better experience to be with Jesus and to be in heaven, to be freed from the presence of sin and its effects in our world and all the problems that we see as a result of sin's presence on this earth, to be freed from the power of sin, right? If you're a Christian, to have to imagine to have to never again struggle with your flesh and the sinful tendencies that rage and war against your soul that frustrate you when you fail to have the absence of a sinful nature, to be in the presence of God, never have to struggle with your flesh and its sinfulness ever, ever again. To be freed from sickness and suffering and sorrow and pain and the death process never again. And to experience literally and continually face-to-face -face the Lord Jesus Christ. To be able to enjoy the realm of peace and tranquility and joy and continuous worship that never ceases because, oh, we better hurry up because if we go a few minutes over, people are going to be concerned about lunch. Never again. Never again. We'll just worship continuously, enjoying the Lord's presence. And there's no end to that. The reunions of loved ones who've gone on to be with them, to catch up with them. I say this this morning, please hear me. Don't ever, ever think that anything on earth could possibly be better than being in heaven. And sometimes you know, we say these things, or I'll hear people say, oh, I hope the Lord doesn't come back before I get married. I want to get married first. Trust me. <laughs> my, my marriage is heavenly. But I don't care who you ultimately get, 
you're going to want. Some people are like, you can't wait to get to heaven. It's just it's the opposite. Oh, I, can't, I want to have children. I understand it's wonderful, but nothing. It's far better. And that's why the psalmist says, Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Because as Christians, God looks and says, man, that's graduation. It's far better what they get, way better than what they're dealing with on the earth. Way better. It's a way better experience. That's why as believers, Paul and other Christians almost have this kind of, and it puzzles people who don't know the Lord. Why are you like so, you always act like you're like kind of almost excited about dying. You keep acting like you want to leave. What's the matter with you? You're kind of weird. Well, I am, I am kind of a little weird because I understand this spiritual reality that life's wonderful, but heaven is far better. It is far better. And it's a release from the struggles of what's on this earth. Again, not that we shouldn't love life, but we just understand what's beyond this life. And that's what Paul's saying. It's, it's far better. Now, considering that, he wanted to be with the Lord, but he also, take notice, secondarily, saw the benefit of being around for a time on earth to help people. And that's what he's saying in our verses here. In verse 23 and 24, he says here, Nevertheless, I realize that to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul's saying, as much as I would enjoy to get to go home and be with Jesus right now, as much as I would thoroughly enjoy being set free from this body of sin and this difficult world, I also realize that my remaining around, living a little bit longer, he says, also meets a very important need in your life there among the believers at Philippi and other Christians. He realized entering heaven would solve all his problems. But he also realized, by the same token, that it was more needful for him for a season to be around on the earth by God's will and design to be available to help these other believers. Paul served an integral purpose in the lives of these believers, and because of that, we know Paul didn't die at this time. But his attitude is astonishing. And his attitude is something really that should cause us to aspire towards the same thing. Notice that what Paul's saying, hey, I'd much rather desire to, to depart and be with Christ, but nevertheless, I realize to remain is more needful for you. Paul's taking into consideration not just what suited himself, not just what benefited himself, not just what he needed or wanted, but he's taking into consideration what do other people need? What's best for them? And I want you to see this morning that his thought process and decisions was guided by taking into consideration what was best for others. Let me repeat that. His thought process and how he made his decisions was guided by what was best for others. And if I'm to be honest, and you were as well, oftentimes that's a very overlooked guidepost for how we make our decisions because we're stinking selfish. And usually we make our decisions of what's best for me, what do I want, what do I need. But what a wonderful thing and a great example to be able to aspire toward and come to the place where we can set ourselves aside and make our decisions and have the mindset, yes, I'm, I may prefer this. I, I can say that. I, I want this. I wish it would go that way. Or right now I would like to have this or I would like to do that. But... What's the most needful and best thing for this person or for those people? And to be able to make decisions that way, to be able to live our lives in a way where we can say, yeah, I, I, I think I want this and I would like things to go that way, but, but what's, what's really best for my children? What's really best for my wife or for my husband? Or, or what's best for those around me? What would be best for them? Such a wonderful thing to be able to have that attitude. Philippians 2, Paul's going to say, In loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Because that's how Jesus lived. And, and I want to challenge us this morning that we would ask God by his grace to give us the heart where as the way we live in our homes and in our marriages and among our world, where we could be people who process decisions saying, you know what, I know what I think, feel, want, prefer, but really, is that what's best for this person? Is that what's best for my family? Is that what's best for... And to ask yourself that, and to even have the courage once in a while, get ready, 
to say no to yourself so you can say yes for what's better for somebody else. That's tough. But I really think that honors the heart of the Lord. Again, Paul specifically says, esteem others better than yourself. Look out for your own interests, not just for your own. In, in, and that's not just in huge things, in little things. Common courtesies. Common courtesies. Little tiny things. Hey, I want to do this. Okay, but, but does that bug somebody else right now? It doesn't have to be the major things, even in the little things. It's an old word that our culture's kind of lost. It's called considerate. Or I think it might have been called something too like uh, manners. Just common courtesy. As Christians, we certainly should exemplify that. Look what he says, verse 25. He goes on saying, And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Somehow, Paul again sensed in his spirit that he wasn't going to die, that the Lord was going to extend his life like Peter talked about. He sensed in his heart, hey, I don't think it's going to culminate in my death. But he knew that he wanted to remain alive, again, notice, so that he could be useful in the lives of these believers. He says, I realize it's more needful for me to remain alive and therefore, he says, I'm confident that I'm going to remain, he says, first of all, for your progress, second of all, for your rejoicing. Paul, notice, had a burden in his heart to help them move forward spiritually. He says, I want to continue, I will continue for your progress, that God would use him as an instrument to help facilitate spiritual progress that he would be someone in the lives of these Philippian believers that God could use to uh, help them experience growth, to bring about further maturity in spiritual things. And by way of point and application, hear me, the Lord wants us to all make progress. That's the will of God, progress in the Christian life. Many times we characterize the spiritual life and we talk about it, and the Bible even speaks about it, as our walk with God. We'll just simplify that. Walk with God. Walk implies you're not standing still. Walk implies you're moving forward. You're making progress. And the Lord wants for us all to be making progress in our spiritual lives. Colossians 2 says, As you therefore receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, for this reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue to virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, and he goes on with the list. But again, add to your faith. He then says at the end of that same letter, 2 Peter 3, grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior. Again, walk, add, grow. The heart of the Lord is that we make progress in our spiritual lives. This morning's a great occasion to just pause and to just do an inventory and ask yourself, can you truly say that you have made spiritual progress in your walk with the Lord from where you were six months ago? From where you were six months ago, have you really made spiritual progress? Or from where you were a year ago, or maybe if you've been a Christian for a long time, where you were five, five years ago? Are you stagnating? Are you slipping back? Or are you making progress? The heart of the Lord is that we advance and make spiritual progress as he helps us to grow. And the Lord wants, I believe, to use us in each other's lives to help people make progress, like Paul said. There are people in your life, consider who's in your life. Again, maybe it's your children. As a parent, you know what? We're called to help our children make spiritual progress. That's our responsibility, to help my kids make spiritual progress. As a husband, you're a spiritual leader. It's your job to help your wife make spiritual progress. As individuals, there are people in our lives, Christians that maybe we can mentor and encourage, those younger in the faith, or even people around us that God's given us relationships with. They don't know Jesus yet, but little by little, have relationship with them. Look for opportunities to help them make progress, to understand what it means to be a Christian so that they can accurately consider, do I want to become a Christian? To help people make progress. And by all means, let us never be guilty of being a stumbling block in hindering somebody's progress. 
Let us not be guilty of that. Instead, let us be doing what we can to enhance the progress of others around us. And Paul's presence with them also wasn't just needful for progress, but he also knew it seems that it would help them not get discouraged. Because you notice he also speaks of his remaining that would bring rejoicing when they would see his coming to them, verse 26, again. Remember Paul said, pray for me. He told the Philippians, pray for me so that God will bring deliverance. And I think Paul understood it will greatly encourage these believers if they see that God answered their prayers. So Paul says, you know what? I have a sense that God's going to use my life and release me also so that when I come to you again, you're going to be incredibly encouraged. You're going to see, wow, we prayed and God answered. And sometimes I think God will work in our lives to encourage the faith of other people. Sometimes God will use our lives and work in our lives because other people need to see the power of God at work. So the Lord will work in your life in a certain way so that those who are on looking or those who are around you can see the Lord work powerfully in your life and they get really encouraged by that. Hey, I prayed for that and that actually happened. I spoke to someone recently and as they were talking to me in a conversation they were literally reiterating the very thing specifically that I had been praying for them for. And I didn't tell them that because I didn't want to look at, oh, you know, I'm so, my prayers are so powerful. <laughs> no, but I was seriously encouraged. I was like, wow, I specifically prayed almost those exact sentiments and sentences that this person is saying to me, and God, you did it in their life. And Paul says, you prayed for my deliverance, I sense that God's going to work in my life to encourage you, to make you rejoice as you see me coming to you again. Verse 27, he says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So Paul was asking that they'd conduct themselves appropriately, that they would work together cooperatively, he describes there. He first just says, look, whether I can get to you or not, he says, just let your conduct, he says, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Asking for appropriate conduct, specifically in relation to their faith in Jesus. And why? Simple. Because if we are professing to be people who have embraced and been impacted by the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And our sins have been forgiven. And our lives have been transformed. Listen, these are all things the gospel of Jesus Christ represents. The gospel of Jesus Christ represents, I've repented of a life of sin. I'm following Jesus now. He's my Lord. And, and the gospel transforms people's lives. It turns people around. It makes them new creatures in Christ. And if we're professing those things, then we should conduct ourselves in a way that's worthy of that message that we profess to people. And when we don't, if we profess to be a follower of Jesus or we profess to have experienced the gospel and yet the practice of my life shows a contradiction, I'm doing a tremendous, do you understand? A tremendous disservice to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul's going to tell the Ephesians as well, in Ephesians 4.1, I beseech you as a prisoner of the Lord to walk worthy of the calling that you've received. Listen, what we've experienced, certainly that's worth representing well. And this morning, again, evaluate your life. Consider your present conduct. If you're professing to be a Christian, is your conduct worthy of your profession? Because we're supposed to be examples and representatives in the world. And it's a really tremendous disservice to Jesus when we claim his name and that we conduct ourselves in a way that's really confusing to the world. He says to them, hey, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I think in these last few verses, he gives a few brief examples of how basically we can do that. The first thing he mentions in verse 27 is unity among believers. And we'll talk more about this in chapter 2 as Paul discusses this more. But whether Paul got the visit or not, he longed to hear that the affairs among the church were representative of a group of people who loved the Lord working in unity 
and in cooperation. The picture there of what he describes is kind of like a, a sports team that plays really well together and that's why they're victorious. Or like a military unit that holds its line and can go forth and accomplish missions with good execution. Paul says, I hope to hear that you stand fat in one spirit. To stand fast in one spirit speaks of kind of remaining on course, staying dedicated to your cause as a group of people, though clearly each person possesses differences, that's okay, but despite our differences, there's the same inward desire spiritually that keeps us on course. And that same inward desire that helps us stand fast in one spirit is to want to be led by the Spirit of God to be directed by the Spirit of God for the glory of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you something, that kind of a spirit, to want to be led by the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ, that kind of a spirit among a family of believers will bring incredible stability to a group of Christians. It will make them effective and fruitful and healthy. He also says, I hope to hear that you have one mind striving together for the gospel's sake. Again, one mind, the idea is one overall focus. You have the same goal. You have the same vision. Your philosophy of how you view things, he says, that there would be an agreement among your mindset of the way to approach what you're approaching and the, the aim of where you're headed, the idea is. And for a group of believers or for a local church or a team of servants, it's essential. If we're going to strive together to be on the same target, it's essential for us that we see things the same way. The Bible says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? If you don't see things the same way, if you don't have the same perspective and viewpoint of, hey, what's the goal, number one, and two, how are we going to accomplish this goal? It just doesn't work. It causes frictions and more problems than what it should. So Paul says, I pray that you would stand fast in one spirit having one mind striving together, again, cooperation, unity, wonderful marks of believers, good representation to the world of the love of Christ being among them. He also mentions in verse 28, not only unity among believers, but spiritual confidence among the world. Because he says that in no way should you be terrified by your adversaries, which to them is proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. So the second thing he mentions here is spiritual confidence in the world. Persecution was beginning to happen at this time among Christians. And that persecution against the church and fellow believers all around Paul and in, over in the church in Philippi, it was resulting in people being hurt, people being mistreated, and it also was resulting in fear and intimidation being struck into the lives of people. And the attention of the adversaries of the Christian faith was to do exactly that, was to intimidate, was to fear and to slow down and to silence the truth so that they didn't have to deal with the conviction of their accountability for what the truth represented. And if they could silence and eradicate believers, guess what they could do? They could then justify this Christian thing. This is a bunch of religious fanaticism. If they're willing to cower down like that, they could just dismiss. See, I told you, it's just all a big show and a sham. They're not willing to pay a cost for it. And if they could silence them and intimidate them, they could just dismiss it all and, and pass it off. So the Bible says, look, not in any way be terrified of your adversaries because as you endure in faith, despite the pressure, and you continue to stay your course and believe what you believe, it proves something to the unsaved world and to your adversaries of the faith, it proves, guess what? God is real. And it proves heaven and hell are real. And it proves the truths of God are right and you're the one that's wrong and I'll lose my life for it if I need to. Because I believe these things are that true in their reality. And it becomes a strong, silent testimony when we stand in the face of fear and continue to have faith, it speaks a very powerful message because it resonates something to those who are adversaries. It resonates to them, hey, perdition and hell, it's real. And heaven, it's real. And we believe that and we're willing to continue to stay the course and wait patiently for those things. Lastly, notice he also mentions, thirdly, accepting suffering as a part of the will of God. Look what he says in verse 29 and 34. To you, 
it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So Paul, knowing they're going to experience some suffering because there's persecution, we live in a fallen world with sin and problems, it's almost as if he seeks to help them accept the reality about what life for Christ is going to be like. It's going to involve some suffering. It's just a part of the process. And the more we actively try and serve the Lord and shine as a light and really live for Jesus and swim upstream against the grain, the more we try and serve the Lord faithfully, it's just going to bring, truthfully, greater measures of conflict because we become a target for the enemy in a sense. So Paul here in verse 30 says, look, resistance and challenges he says you saw those things in with me the first time when I was there with you in Philippi and again he says you hear conflict is in my life right now I'm sitting here imprisoned in Rome conflict has been a part of my life and ministry he's just trying to assure these believers just because you suffer it doesn't mean something's wrong just because you're taking some flack and resistance because of your Christianity doesn't mean you've done something wrong you might be doing everything right and that's why the tension exists. That's why there's conflict. Because have you ever shined the light real quick in the dark? People, people don't like it and they react. And again, Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, about experiencing persecutions and afflictions which happened to me at Antioch, which persecutions I endured. He says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, I wish he didn't say this, will suffer persecution. He didn't say all who live for Christ Jesus will suffer persecution because, again, I can be a Christian, you can be a Christian, and I can just exist in the world. I'm going to play it safe. I hope nobody figured out I was a Christian in my school. I made it through the year. Nobody knew it. Whew. I hope nobody at my job knows I'm a Christian. Or we can say, I am a Christian. It is who I am. And I'm going to live godly in Christ Jesus I'm going to proactively seek to influence and affect those around me. And the Bible says, but with that, it does come a measure of persecution. In fact, look in closing what Paul says in verse 29. It's almost hard to swallow and difficult to expound. He just says it's been granted on behalf of Christ. Paul makes it sound like it's a gift. Here's your consolation prize. This is a gift. It's been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. I would encourage you to read 1 Peter 4 because it's a chapter that deals extensively with the very thing that Paul just declared there. That part of the Christian experience at times means that as I serve Jesus Christ and you live for Jesus Christ faithfully, it will, hear me, require you to suffer. And I can't tell you what that's going to be and how, but it will require you to pay a cost. But can I ask a question? Isn't it worth the cost? And the reality is, I know life's difficult, I know it's hard, but one day we're going to get to depart and be with Christ. And that's far better. And we have something to look forward to. And in the interim, let us not seek to just insulate ourselves and exist. Let us instead seek to affect the world and impact the world because there's only a short season then we depart. Let us be effective until that time.